morning I want to continue again just looking about growing in the grace of God. Growing in the grace of God. I remember many years ago as a teenager lying in my bed thinking that God was angry with me. Every night I'd go to bed with that reoccurring thought. You know, you lay your head on the pillow and sometimes in those quiet moments of the night, in those moments where you're still, in those moments where all of the other voices of your world have stopped and you lie down at night, you put your head on your pillow, sometimes it's there where thoughts are awakened and another voice becomes prevalent and the reoccurring voice that came to me time and time again in my teenage years when I used to lay my head on the pillow was that God was angry with me. God was looking at my life down from the far reaches of heaven and Somehow I felt that he was frustrated with me as a person. He was angry with me. And that was a disturbing thought. That was a thought that caused me to be anxious. And I didn't know what, you know, what I was going to do with my life. I didn't know anything about the direction that my life was going to take. I was messed up in many ways. In many ways, even as a young teenager. Even... In the short few years that I had lived, I'd come to the point as a 11, 12, 13-year-old teenager, and I'd got to a place of being in a very, very confused state. I was living in Northern Ireland, and that wasn't really helping things, if you know what I mean. Bombs, bullets, and blood everywhere, anger and hatred all around me, And I was somehow getting thrown into the mix and brought up in all of that hatred and all of that pain. And there was an aggression waking within me and all of these different voices and all of these different directions were coming at me all at once. And then when I'd get out of that and I'd go and I'd lie my head on my pillow at night, in those Moments before I would go to sleep, I would think, do you know what? God's really angry with me. He's really frustrated with me. He can't love me. Those were the thoughts. Those were the conversations that I had with myself. A man once said, his name was Karl Barth. He was an incredible theologian. And that simply means he studied the Bible and he took truths of the Bible and he explained them and he wrote lots of things about them. Credible theologian, Karl Barth, was doing a tour across America. And the auditoriums that he went into were packed out every night. And he spoke about difficult things in the Bible. He explained them to sell out crowds. And one night, he opened up the floor for questions. And one student stood up, and he said, Mr. Barth, what is the greatest discovery that you've ever made about God? You're a studier of the Bible. You're a great theologian. 
you make hard things simple. What is the greatest discovery that you've ever made, Mr. Bath, in all of your years of studying the Bible? And he said, very simply, he said, son, he said, this is the greatest discovery that I've made in all of the years that I've studied the Bible. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. When you meet Jesus, the first thing that you encounter is God's love. The first thing that you become aware of is his favor and his grace and his acceptance, not his anger, not his anger, but his acceptance and his embrace of you. Somebody came to me and they said, Dave, Jesus loves you. The voice and the thoughts that were so prevalent in my head was that God is angry with you, Dave. God is frustrated with you. God doesn't have any place for you. He likes other people, but he doesn't like you. And somebody once came to me in all of that mix and they said, Dave, God loves you. Jesus died for you. And I said, what? Are you serious? He loves me. What have I got to do to get that love? And he said, simply this, you've got to trust that he did everything that you need him to do for you in order to save your life. I said, is it that easy? He said, yeah, it's that easy. You just cry out, you pray a prayer, and, and suddenly he'll come to live on the inside of your heart. As a 15-year-old kid, I believed that. I wasn't an intelligent person. I didn't have much brains. I didn't do very well in my, in my examination results. In fact, I didn't turn up for them. So I wasn't, you know, the brightest tool in the box. But when this man said to me, he said, Dave, listen, Jesus Christ loves you. He's not angry with you. He, he, he just wants you to trust him. He just wants an invitation into your heart. And the moment you give him that open invitation and you ask him to come into your heart, he's in for good. He's in for good. And you know what? With simple childlike faith, I said, come on then. I'll pray the prayer. I'll ask him in. And I asked him in and suddenly, I can't explain it, friends. I don't know how it works. I don't. I don't know how it works. I don't know how to be able to describe it to you. I just said, Jesus, please forgive me. It was raw. It wasn't some kind of polished prayer. Oh, thou, oh, Lord, great one of the heavens above, maker of the universe and the outermost parts of space. Oh, God, come thou now into my heart. Holy one, lofty one, mighty one. It was, a, it was a raw, rugged, ugly, unprepared prayer, just ripping out of my heart, ripping out of the pain, coming through, grabbing onto the invisible. God, God, would you help me? God, would you come into this heart? God, would you come into this life full of pain? Please. And something happened that day. I can't explain it. But peace came into my heart. 
And my life has never been the same since. You will be able to testify to this one. I didn't become perfect. No way. There's been a lot of mess along the way. There's been a lot of hiccups and trip-ups and sin. But he's in for good. He just came into my life. And 46 years later, I'm still walking with him, not in a religion, but just in a relationship every single day. God's not angry with us. God's not angry with us. God loves us. Mentioned last week that John the Baptist came with a very, very clear message. And his message was this. Repent! You need to say sorry to God. Everybody he met, repent. You need to say sorry. Look at your sins. Look at what you've done. You haven't got a connection with God. You're far away from God. Repent. Repent. That was his message. Turn away from this evil, wicked generation. Strong message. Strong words. Direct. He was a forerunner of Jesus. A a, a person that prepared the way for Jesus. And in, in his time, what he did was right. He was making people aware of what was coming. But Jesus then rocks up, walks down the street, and he doesn't say anything about repentance. Oh, I love this. I love this. Because do you know what? Sometimes we become so religious about, you know, repentance. And we think that, you know, we've got to repent We think we've got to repent to get God's favor. We think that we've got to repent to get God's goodness. We think that we've got to to repent to get God's love. Not true, friends. The Bible doesn't put it in that order. The Bible says that God pours his goodness on you. He pours his mercy on you. He pours his love on you. And as a result of that overflow of goodness, as a result of that overflow of mercy everywhere on your life, suddenly you wake up to the fact that God is on you, being good to you, and you think, my God, I think it's about time I changed my mind about God. He's not angry. He's good. He's full of goodness. So when Jesus walked down the street, and I'll give you Bible for it, I'll give you Bible for it, I promise you, when Jesus walked down the street, he didn't say, repent, repent, Come out of your houses. Come out of the corners, the dens of iniquity where you are. Repent. Change your mind. You know, you're you're living a life of sin. You're, you're, You're going the wrong way. Repent. No. John says he just walked down the street. And he says, listen, from his fullness, we all received. Grace upon grace. Glory upon glory. Jesus wasn't about issuing a message of repentance. Jesus, out of his fullness, was about people receiving from that grace that he had so much of and that filled his life. God's not about repentance. You know, in the Old Testament, when you look at that repentance, that word repentance, it it draws up very, well, lots of negative pictures. Because Repentance in the Old Testament was all about externals. So if you felt that God wasn't pleased with you, people would take their nice clothes off and they would put sackcloth on. Very, very drab attire. 
And they would throw ashes over their head and they would wail and they would mourn. And everything was external because they wanted everybody to see that now they were performing their repentance before God. But New Testament repentance is nothing to do with externals. New Testament, you know, uh, repentance isn't to do about coming to the front of an altar and crying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for what I've done. No, not at all. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, you don't have to do that. I'm not saying that sometimes that doesn't happen. But lots of times, New Testament repentance is just all about just having a a change of mind. A change of mind. It really is. Just change your mind about, about God. He's not angry with you. He's good to you. He's gracious. He's full of mercy. So Jesus comes in this way. John chapter 1, verse 14. John clearly tells us how Jesus came. Not with a message of repentance, but this ministry of dispensing his grace where everybody could receive. And that's why religious people hated Jesus because he made no distinction. He made no distinction. You know, Jesus just rocked up down the street, sat with sinners, ate with them, you know, welcomed prostitutes. They were all coming to him with their needs, with their, with their ailments, the things that they couldn't shake free off their life. Jesus just received them all, and they were all the same, whether you were, whether you were wearing religious clothes or not. Jesus received them, received everybody to himself, and he was hated for that. Why? Because he was bringing a new way. And he was showing what God was on and, and a system that had been so entrenched for thousands of years was crumbling before this grace that was walking down the street. John tells us exactly how Jesus came in his ministry. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. We saw it with our eyes. We saw the glory of God in Jesus with our own eyes. The glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And uh, listen, here we go. And of his fullness, we have all received. And grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus here now, walking into the world around him, is dispensing the grace of God wherever he goes. It wasn't just in religious establishments, it was in people's homes. It was in the highways and the byways of life where he lifted people and grace met them. And this grace changed them and this grace saved them. It wasn't rules and regulations and, and, and instructions and, and a new list of spiritual duties that he gave people, that he left people with. He dispensed his grace. He dispensed the glory of God and he healed the sick by that grace. He did amazing things as a result of that grace operating in his life. Now, Peter, the apostle, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, talks about growing 
in grace. He instructs us to grow in grace. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forevermore. Now, when Peter wrote those words, He was an old man when he wrote his letter. He'd had time, much time, to think about what was the priority of Jesus. And as an old man, he writes and he gives advice. And he says, listen guys, if you're going to grow in anything, grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in that grace. Peter didn't start out very graceful. When Jesus chose him, he was a rough old diamond, Peter was. But Jesus chose him. Jesus Jesus called him to come on his team for three years. Peter wasn't a graceful man when when Jesus chose him. But as an older man, As a wiser man, as a man that now had walked with Jesus many years and had the Holy Spirit in his life, he says, grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a young man, Peter was obnoxious, confrontive. He was angry. The Bible tells us that Peter actually was a zealot, and that means he was a terrorist. He was an insurrectionist. He was a man that was part of a group of people that rose up against the Roman occupation of the time and wanted to overthrow it. They were zealots. They were waiting for a Messiah. So when Jesus turned up, they think he's the Messiah. They think he's their their leader that's going to overthrow Roman occupation. The only thing was Jesus didn't come and say, I have come that I might lead you, did he? He said, I have come that I might serve you. The emphasis of the kingdom is not on leadership, friends, and that flies in the face of modern-day Christianity. The emphasis of the kingdom of God is on servanthood. Let me tell you, it really is. So in this house, we're not raising up and releasing leaders. We're raising up and releasing servants foot washers, people of the kingdom that go the extra mile, that get struck in the face, offer the world the other cheek. That's the spirit that's in this house because that's the spirit of Jesus. It really is. Just to give you a bit of encouragement. But Peter thinks that Jesus is this awesome leader. He's the leader. He's the one. That's come to lead the insurrection. That's come to do the business against Rome. And then one day Jesus turns around and he just begins to reveal his, his intention. Why, why he's really here. And he says, listen, I'm going to lay my life down. I'm not going to lead anything. I'm going to lay my life down. If you want to be great, boys, you've got to become the least. You haven't got to become the leader. Da-da. It's not rocket science, is it? 
If you want to become great boys, don't become the leader. Don't become the prominent one. Don't become, you know, don't ask for positions by me. Wash each other's feet. Watch me. He said, if you want to become great, become the least. And he goes, you know, he goes another step and he says, become the servant of all. Because that's who I am. If you're following me, boys, you're going to have to take up a cross. Because, and that cross is going to be used on your selfish old self. When you want to become the leader, the cross is there to enable you to disarm that selfish side of you and become a servant. This is the kingdom that you're in. Welcome to it. Welcome to it. And it surprised the disciples. It certainly surprised Peter. He got angry by it. He was incensed by it to the point that he rose up and rebuked Jesus. Ooh. I'm glad I didn't have that calling. He rebukes the Son of God. So, at this point in Peter's life, we could say that he ha didn't have much grace in his life. He didn't know much about the power of grace. He rebukes Jesus. And then suddenly, you know, the, the, the time goes on. They get into the upper room. And, and Peter, you know, he just, he just swears this, this allegiance to Jesus that is so unreal. If you're going to die, Jesus, then I'm going to be a servant just like you. I'm going to lay my life down. I'll, I'll die with you. And Jesus says, listen, Peter, not being funny, mate. You don't know what you're talking about. And, and do you know what, right? Do you know what? Do you know why he said that? Because he knew that Peter didn't have grace for the pressures of life. For the pressures of life. When life comes, it really does show you how graceful you are. It's, life is a wonderful revelation of, and an indication of how you're growing. Whether you're growing in grace or whether you're growing in the flesh. And life was going to indicate to Peter very forcibly that he hadn't grown in grace at all. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed by Judas, he, he, he went into the garden and then suddenly Peter rises up. This is my moment. All of the soldiers have come to arrest Jesus. He pulls his sword out so valiantly and he says, I'm going to show you, Lord, we'll die with you. And he chops a man's, well, he goes for his head, but he gets his ear. So he wasn't much good with a sword anyway. Takes his ear off. What happens? Grace takes the ear of that soldier. And he heals it. And he puts it on the man's head. He said, Peter, put your sword away. And now again, grace is leading the way. Fullness of grace, you see. Grace doesn't just heal people. Grace doesn't just forgive people of terrible sins. Thank God he forgave my terrible sins. Anybody else in the house? He for grace will forgive your sins. Grace will, will heal your body. Grace, will, grace can even raise the dead. I, I don't know how it does that, but it can do that. Jesus did that. Grace can do all manner of things, but also grace. Grace can stand in the presence of hostility. Grace can stand in the presence of, of terrible wickedness in, in a dark, dark place and stand completely controlled 
unmoved in its emotion, not angry, not returning strike for strike. Grace teaches Peter right there, and, and it's foreign to this man, and Peter just runs off. He goes off, and within the hour, he denies that he's ever known Jesus three times, and he actually curses the name of Jesus. So, Peter hadn't really grown in grace as a disciple. Peter didn't really know much about this grace that Jesus was full of. He'd seen it operate. He'd seen it do so many wonderful things, but really in his life, he didn't have it. He didn't have it. He denies Jesus. And he goes through a very, very bitter, bitter experience. Let me read to you from John chapter 20. I want to pick up on some verses there. This is after Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, let's think about, as we read this, the context or what's happened before this, okay? Think about some of the things that have happened before this entrance that Jesus makes into a room where the disciples are assembled. First of all, they've all messed up. They've all left Jesus. They've deserted him. He spoke up for everyone. Nobody spoke up for him. They've left him. They've deserted him. They don't want anything to do with him. They've th they, they thought that he's dead. Simple as that. It's over. And they all basically run away. All of their promises of loyalty were empty ones. When the pressure was on, they, they, they fled. John 20 says this, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst. So he's risen from the dead now, just like he said he would. He stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And when he said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He didn't go into the room with a message of repentance, did he? He went to minister for them to receive. These disciples, it was the worst weekend of their life. They had not only seen Jesus, their, the, their friend and the one that they loved and the one that they knew to be God in the flesh. They had not only seen him whipped and beaten and, and brutally impaled on a cross, but they had seen the, 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 the depravity of their own lives because they had no grace in it. They must have thought, because on this day, they were getting reports now that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. 
So they assembled in a room. They locked the doors because they were afraid of all the Jews because they saw what the Jews had done to Jesus and the Romans had done to Jesus and everybody else had done to him. And they locked the doors and then suddenly Jesus walks through what they had barricaded themselves into. And the first thing that he says is peace. Peace. Now, this is the man that was beaten and whipped. The Bible says he had his beard plucked. The Bible says that his back was ripped open by Roman whips, and it was plowed like a field. There was furrows in his back. His hands were nailed to a cross. His, his side was pierced. It gushed blood and water. There was a crown of thorns on his head. He, he underwent the most inhumane things possible that we would never be able to imagine from people and from soldiers and all of the betrayal and all of the huge emotional weight that fell on Jesus. And then the Bible actually says that he became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And when he became sin, at that moment, the fierce wrath of God came down on him and judged him as if we were being judged. But in him being judged, we were saved and we went free. Substitutionary sacrifice, he did it, only he could do it. Then he went into hell and he set free captives and he had victory over them and, and, and took the keys of hell and death. And he rises from the dead and suddenly he comes into the room, not emotionally bro broken, not trying to pick himself up as a result of all of the things that he'd just gone through over the last three days. He comes in in triumph. He comes in reigning in resurrected life as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the first thing he says to disciples that were cowering, to disciples that were full of fear, to disciples that were hiding, to disciples that felt guilty, to disciples that could only remember all of the sins that they had committed as they left him. They were disappointed with their lives. They were under terrible guilt. The first thing the Lord says in the room is peace, peace. Receive my peace. And then he says, receive my Holy Spirit as he breathed, as he breathed on them. Peter, as an older, older man, says this is the grace to grow in. It was this grace that enabled him to give Judas, the one that betrayed him, the sop. The sop was the bread and the wine mixed together. It was the highest gift that a host could give a friend. And grace gave 
Judas the sop before he betrayed him. Grace can do that. It was grace that enabled him to wash the feet of the one that would, that would sell him for 30 pieces of silver. It was the fullness of grace that enabled him to look in the eyes of one that would deny him and wash his feet too. It was grace that enabled him to go into a garden and weep and cry and sweat great drops of blood. Grace enabled and empowered him to say, not my will, but thy will be done. Grace enabled him to stand up as he met a legion of soldiers coming for his life. Grace held him and controlled him when he could have called legions of angels to come to his aid and deal with those who were aggressively taking him unjustly. Grace enabled him to go through the whipping and through the beating. Grace enabled him when he was on the cross as he looked out at all of the horrid things that were happening and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Grace brought closure and said, it is finished. And it is this grace, it is this grace that Peter says, this is the grace that we need to grow in. As we look at Jesus, as we reflect on Jesus, as we think about him, it is this grace that we have the privilege to grow in. Paul writing to a young pastor, Timothy, his son, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, says, Timothy, be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy, don't be strong in your own opinions. Timothy, don't be strong in your own thoughts. Don't be strong in your own attitudes. Don't be strong, Timothy, in, in, in your own way of doing things. Be strong. If you're going to be strong in anything, Timothy, be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles knew full well what that grace could do. The apostles knew full well the power of that grace. It is amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. God's not after our repentance initially. Yeah, you might have a change of mind as a result of the goodness of God. Definitely. Very often the church, it's not hard for the church to repent. We can repent all day long. Our job, our hard job, the hard job for us is receiving, not repenting. It really is. It really is. Peter, I want to wash your feet. Not me, Lord, never. You'll never wash my feet. Receive, Peter. And if you can't receive, you have no part with me. It's all about receiving, friends, and as a result of receiving, a change of mind occurs. Now, maybe today there are areas of your life that you've been trying to get through with the arm of the flesh, trying, working, striving, 
I'll do it my way. I'll do it this way. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in destruction. And that destruction isn't just necessarily the end of your life. There can be a way that seems right to you and you think, well, I'm going to do it this way in this relationship and it's destructive. I'm going to do it this way in my, in my workplace and it's destructive. I'm going to do it this way with my children and you don't allow the grace of God to per- permeate your attitude. You don't allow the grace of God to permeate the words coming out of your mouth. You don't allow the grace of God to permeate aspects of your life and we become so destructive at things. Because we're following the way that seems right to us. We don't need to follow the way that seems right to us. We need to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be strong in the grace of God like Paul encouraged Timothy to do. And that grace is clearly seen. It's hard to define what grace is. But if you want to see it, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And that's how we have to have our interactions with one another. That's how we have to have our interactions in our homes. When an argument wants to flare up. Hold on. I'll ask the musicians to come now because I'm talking about marriage. Quick. Make it soft. Come on, Joe. Get on those ivories. Let's make this soft, mate. In our marriages. Listen. Let me say this to you now. The enemy will attack marriage. He will. Let's say it as it is. The enemy will attack marriage. The world will attack marriage. And I'll tell you why. Because it it is the greatest picture. It's not, friends, listen to me now. I'll just say it as it is. It's not just where you have sex and where you have babies. It's wonderful to have union with your wife. Absolutely wonderful. But even when you have union together... Do you know that, that that symbol of intercourse between a husband and a wife represents the intimacy that Christ has with the church? The picture of marriage is not just something we do because we want to get together, buy a house and, you know, have, have a family. It's mysterious and mystical and it represents the church and Jesus, the bride and the groom. It's a wonderful symbol and picture. And that's why it's so misused, so misrepresented, so mixed up in our world. And so attacked. If you're having difficulty in your marriage, it's not just because you're not getting on, let me tell you. It's because there's powers at work that want to get in there and want to destroy that because your lives together are a wonderful picture of God's grace in relation to Christ, the head, and the bride, the church. So we have to remember that. And if we struggle in our marriage, we have to come together and say, Lord, as a husband, as a wife, Lord, please help us. He'll help. He'll give you strength. But we have to be gracious. We have to grow in grace. We get the privilege of growing in this grace. Paul said to Timothy, be strong. Be strong. Can we put it up just one second, Marcia? Thanks. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong 
in the grace, listen, not that was in, not that was in, that is in Christ Jesus, present tense, tense. Be strong in this grace. It's your portion as a believer. It's your portion as a child of God. The grace of God. You've been betrayed. Look your betrayer in the, in the face, smile, and say, I honor you. And I'm not even pretending the grace of God, the reservoir of God's grace is so strong in my life, I can forgive you. You've been slapped across the face by a comment or by an action of another. Offer them the right side of your cheek like Jesus said. Go the extra mile with them. Why? Not because you're some great human, but just because you're strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, this is the grace that we are to grow in. Amen. Let's close our eyes right now. I'm going to pray a prayer right now. You may never have asked Jesus into your life. You may not know anything about this wonderful love that I spoke about. You may be today just like I was years ago where you think that God's angry with you. You think that God's against you. You think, well, I know what I've done. God knows what I've done. And therefore, that means that he's angry. No, he's not angry at all. He loves you. He loves me. And that's a wonderful, wonderful place to be at and to realize. I'm going to pray today. I don't know. You may never have prayed a prayer. Can I pray with you? Let's say this together as God's people here. Out loud. And you just join in. Say it. Believe it. Mean it in your heart. And I'm telling you now, something, something supernatural will happen inside. You'll get peace and you'll be saved. Let's say this together. Lord Jesus, come on, we can do better than that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are my Savior. Thank you. You've forgiven me of all of my sin. You've saved me because you love me. I ask you right now to come into my heart. Set me free. Let your grace, goodness, kindness be lavished on my life. I ask you right now and thank you for it. Amen.